Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and Brian has abandoned me once again. Just kidding. Life is complicated, and sometimes you can't uh, make it to your podcast episode. So anyways, uh, we're following up our conversation today with Dr. Indra Joshi and Maxine McIntosh on the state of artificial intelligence in healthcare today. That one was super fun, and today's uh, is just as great. Today, we're focusing on the data, specifically America's data, why we're different, why the future we were promised is both here and pretty damn far away, and whether and why the data is too white. Uh, my guest, uh, my guest, because again, Brian abandoned me, uh, today is Dave Gershgorn. Uh, Dave is the lead artificial intelligence reporter at Quartz, that's QZ.com. He has a lot to say and is super informed and connected on this stuff, and he's also a colleague of uh, Adir Akshat Rathi, who has previously talked to us about the state of carbon capture technologies and whether or not they'll save our collective asses. Hey, this is a reminder uh, that the news is super crazy, and we get you. We got you. Uh, it feels like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, um, and I get that, but I got to tell you there is some hope. There is. Um, you can check out our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com, uh, where we give you uh, only the latest and the most important news. The big, big, big things are affecting everyone now or in the next 10 years or so. Uh, climate change, clean energy, cancer, artificial intelligence, antibiotics, space, uh, CRISPR, that is there. We will we will help you be better informed and, and feel better about uh, what's going on. All right, let's go talk to Dave. Our guest today is Dave Gershgorn, and together we're going to talk about why healthcare artificial intelligence uh, is looking, surprise, uh, very, very white. Uh, Dave, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. For sure, man. Hey, can you tell me real quick who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Dave. I am the artificial intelligence reporter at Quartz. We're an online business and technology publication. And as an AI reporter, pretty much my job is to stay kind of on top of the latest AI research, um, but also kind of how AI is being implemented, whether that's in healthcare, in, you know, in the courts or automation or robots or however uh, it's kind of impacting humans and society. I like it, man. How did you get to uh, AI? What what dragged you in this direction? So before this job, which was like super, which is super specialized now, um, I was an editor at Popular Science, the magazine. Love it. Um, so I was doing a lot of like consumer tech stuff on the print side, um, and then online, I was writing about AR and VR and lasers, which is like the coolest beat on the planet. Sure. Um, Who doesn't want to cover and- lasers? Of course, like when there's a huge laser and they're going to shoot it, you want to see it. 100%. It's awesome. So, but something I, I started getting more and more interested in was AI. And this was in like 2015, mm-hmm. where um, Facebook was just setting up their research lab. Google was just getting really interested in AI. And I kind of saw this this formation of an industry. And I thought that it would be really neat to write more and more about it. So. I pitched a bunch of stories to uh, my bosses and got a bunch of leeway to cover AI a little more uh, robustly than other people were at the time and uh, kind of put together um, what I think are some some pretty good coverage that stands up today on how Google and Facebook think about artificial intelligence. And that kind of led into more and more stuff. And then here I am writing about it full time. Interesting. So you are sort of growing up with the industry a little bit yeah. here. For sure. And it's like, yeah, it's fascinating to see how 
AI has evolved in the last just like four years since I've been, I guess, paying attention to it or three years um, where it's like in, in the way that I think about it is like in 2015, there was still a lot of like whiz bang, look at what AI can do in, in uh, the industry, machine learning industry, but also just like places like Amazon and Facebook. And it's like, we can do these amazing new things. Mm -hmm. Facebook tag your photos by itself. Like that's kind of incredible. And 2016 was like, this is when people started really realizing how much money could be made. And, Mm -hmm. and, and like a lot of the industry, like kind of like swooped in and it was reality. 2017 was like more of the same expansion, 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 but people were starting to tap the brakes a little bit. And 2018 has really been the year where you've seen a lot more consideration of like bias in AI and like where these systems don't necessarily fit and what's really tough for these systems. So that's what I found fascinating in the last, um, I guess, year or so has been looking at like what happens when AI messes up or goes bad or is fed the wrong information. And usually the first two parts of that are informed by the third. So yeah, that's kind of like how I think about the progression of AI in the last few years. Right, right. And so would you say 2019 is the year where it just all ends? That, that this is a... Uh... Yeah, it's all over. I mean, <laughs> if it's not AI, what else? so many other things. It's one, one of 12 fucking other things. Exactly. Uh, probably four of them at the same time. Great, great. Good talk. Uh, super excited about that. Um, so listen, man, uh, as I mentioned a little bit offline and, and everybody kind of knows, but just to remind them, uh, the goal with our uh, conversations uh, is to really give people context around these subjects, uh, pepper you with a bunch of annoying questions to further flesh it out, and then build to some journalism-approved uh, action steps that, in this case, people can take to make themselves better informed, uh, better informed about um, AI and healthcare and personalized medicine and all these all these fun terms that have been thrown at us, um, but are way more complicated uh, than 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 we're finding out. Cool. Uh, we'd like to start with one important question. Instead of saying, tell us your life story, which I just did, I would like to ask you, Dave, why do you feel like you're vital to the survival of the species? I think if anyone answers that they are vital to the importance of our species or the survival of our species or or whatever, I think that they're lying to themselves. But I think that that the the work that I do is, is important because as many people, we need as many people as we can asking questions um about things that people don't understand Mm -hmm. and if it's if there's one thing that most people don't understand it's artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. Um, so all i do is i ask i have no qualifications or background that really makes me better than anybody else's topic but um you're in a safe place yeah I ask really dumb questions of really smart people. And I think mm-hmm. that, that if that helps other people at the end of the day, then I guess it's a uh, it's job well done. I, I think it's immensely valuable. I mean, journalism always has been, but in these cases that are moving so quickly and at the same time hitting some um, particularly uh, interesting hiccups, um, which yeah. with, with theoretically with lives on the line um, or say elections, you know, these, these questions and, and asking uh you know, dumbed down fundamental questions, but also ethical questions is pretty important. Totally. And I think it's super easy to get lost in the math of it all without kind of like really asking, why are we doing this? And like, what is the intention behind 
automating this specific task over another. And like, once you get into those intentions, that's where everybody can participate because that's like, it's, they're very simple values encoded in those intentions. Sure. Which is like, yeah. Well, it's like privacy. It's like, as a user of this service, do I want an AI tool? It's like, they're, it's like a credit card and they'll give you a credit card. Like they'll give you an AI tool. Sure. It helps them like that helps their bottom line. It helps the product managers by pitching AI tools because they mm-hmm. look forward thinking, mm-hmm. you know, it helps the engineers making like tons and tons of money. It helps the companies looking like they are, you know, forward thinking, but it's like, do you as a consumer want this AI tool? And, um, and sometimes you don't have a choice. So sometimes like Facebook, you, I mean, you can opt out of it, but that doesn't really mean anything long term. <laughs> right. I guess like it's, it's, yeah. So it's like being, it's like a kind of a nuanced thing, but I think it's like injecting some intentionality into like how people think about AI and like even like products that they use that have AI in it is, can only be a good thing. Sure. And, you know, we come back to this a lot and I think we'll keep coming back to it. But as the great Dr. Ian Malcolm said, uh, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop yeah. to think if they should. And totally. dinosaurs are great until they're not. Yep. <laughs> All right, Dave. Uh, so I'm going to blow through just a little context here about what we're talking about and why we're talking about it. And you can just jump in and tell me where everywhere I'm wrong. So uh, I won't get, this won't be as wonky as it, as it could be, or, or some of ours uh, is sometimes. So uh, we're talking about artificial intelligence in healthcare. And we've had some conversations about this. We talked to um, some, some women in the UK who work for the NHS and are heading their efforts in this, uh, which are really interesting uh, as they're seeking to compile data and, and start to work on, on that data and what robots they're running into and revelations they're having. Um, but basically, you know, everyone feels like artificial intelligence is the next jam in healthcare. Uh, we've got actual hospitals being built, partnerships, private-public partnerships being built, protocols being built, tested uh, and used in some cases, uh, competition between AI and doctors uh, in in radiology and dermatology. There have been some big, super disappointing, but at the same time, maybe shouldn't have been so disappointing flameouts like IBM's Watson. Uh, Those are the systems, uh, of course, but what about the data? Because this is a uh, two-part dance, right? The, The way it works, uh, or should work to take a step back is you can't just bring in a fresh quote unquote AI computer machine, plug it into the hospital wall and boom, it can tell you who's got cancer and who isn't, or who's going to get in, who doesn't. Right. So these things, uh, the algorithms and systems have to have oodles and oodles of training data that are specific, uh, to the topic at hand, because, uh, again, side note, generalized AI, uh, the, the the quote unquote artificial intelligence that can pick out skin cancer cannot drive your fucking car, and that is a long way off. Uh, and turns out it can barely uh, find skin cancer correctly, right? So it needs this uh, training data to sharpen its focus to find repeatable factors. But the problem we're starting to run into, which shouldn't surprise anyone for a variety of factors, is what if that data is super homogenous? And that means if it's tested and trained, and in many cases run on all white people. And you walk in and you're black or Indian or Latino or, God forbid, a mix of those things. Guess what? It doesn't have a damn clue what to do with you. And and I think we've seen some of these same hiccups. Uh, again, luckily, it's pretty early days uh, in the criminal justice system, even with these new DNA testing kits, 23andMe and Ancestry.com and such. The, the data is mostly white European or, or sorry, at least they have their roots in white European genomes. So 
that's where the results are headed or that's where it's most indicative. But healthcare is what we're pinning our hopes on. Uh, and and it has seemed for a long time that this is a stuff of sci-fi, but we told we're, we're actually told it's not that far out of reach. So I, I go back to our conversation again with, uh, and you actually haven't heard this one because I don't think it's come out by the time we recorded with Dr. Andrew Joshi and almost Dr. Maxine McIntosh over the NHS in the UK. They're working on Alzheimer's and all kinds of things. You know, we've got a long way to go and a lot of difficult fundamental steps to tackle, like standardizing data so systems can even begin to to read and parse and train on it. But the problem is, is it's too white. So I guess with that, for some context, let's let's start to dig in here. How do we make healthcare AI training data less white? So let's just do a little more context and perspective to, to get into it. Dave, from what everything you've covered and you've done such extensive coverage on this, why is it so white? Why, why are we where we are now? So I think that it's, I would say that it's, not necessarily completely white. I would say that it's biased on tons of different factors. Okay. And, and each one of those demographic lines splits the data into a smaller, less significant portion. So you have splits between white, black, Latino, you know, all, all these different, uh, you know, racial demographic lines, which are like more important in things like dermatology and like external diagnoses but then you also have male and female you have poor and rich with gen, like genomics and like the way that you know certain phenotypes are expressed it's like your, your environment is is like super determinant of, of mm-hmm. how you might react to something whether you speak english or not i mean there, there was this the the one of the stories that I wrote about this opened up with um, this startup called Winterlight Labs, and they're trying to do this amazing thing where you try to, where you speak a few sentences, and this algorithm analyzes not what you're saying, but how you're saying it, and how those speech patterns might indicate weaknesses in in the muscles of your vocal cords and those weaknesses in the muscles of your vocal cords can be indicative of alzheimer's disease or uh dementia or like any number of these these mental diseases and you can catch it super early which is like objectively awesome and it's like a super unintrusive test it's like you know it costs nothing to do you could do it on an ipad like they're literally doing these on ipads and it's so cool but like it only works if you spoke Canadian English as a first language. And, 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 and it's just like, a, like you know, when you're a computer scientist and, and your main goal is to, like, make this thing work, maybe that's not your first thought. But it's a lot sure. harder to have that thought in general if you don't speak English as a first language or, like, right. you understand that your data can be biased. And it's not like – I think there's, like, this huge stigma around biased data where it's, like, you know, it's – not the end of the world if it's just a research project, but right. once you start rolling these things into production, like Winterlight was planning to do and, and is, is testing now, it's like this is now that the, the stakes are there. Now it's like a serious thing that you're dealing with. And like this is someone thinking that they don't have dementia if they do, which is like right. that's that's them like not checking a, you know, a potential, uh, you know, tumor or nodule um, right. that they find. So it's it's. The consequences are huge, and so I don't think it's necessarily just about being data being too white. Mm-hmm. Although I think that's like often probably the case, mm-hmm. um, but I think there are tons of other factors. I think it's just like this big idea of like bias and like what does your who does your data 
represent. So let me let me back up real quick again, just to help everybody really understand how this whole system works from start to finish. Let's, I mean, again, I know from from self driving cars to healthcare to criminal justice, it's probably coming from a number of different places. But let's talk about just, I guess, healthcare, and you dial it down however you want to find the best example. Where, let's say, you're running a lab, right, and you're trying to test for skin cancer, or you're trying to test, uh, you're, or you're trying to build al- algorithms for skin cancer or uh, radiology, or, or again, something like Alzheimer's, where literally talk to me, like I'm making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich here. Where do you get data? Where, where, how does this work? Cause we can't talk about where it's, where it's failing and where people aren't getting it. If, if our listeners don't understand like where the hell this actually comes from. Totally. So I, so for my reporting on, on research is has, and talking to a bunch of researchers and what I have seen time and time again is that these, a lot of this fundamental research, a lot of these companies don't have, before they get the VC money, when they're just trying to prove that they can, this is something they can do, you look for anything free that's available. And a lot of times this is, you know, something that's some data that's made public by a university, mm-hmm. some data that's made public by a government, some data that's been made public on a Kaggle, Kaggle, whatever, however you pronounce it, competition, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so public data that you can use and you don't need to pay someone to put into production. And if I could just stop you, so where does that data come from? Where does a university get their data or a government, et cetera? So maybe a government like um, the NHS might, uh, you know, have it from a trial that they ran. Right. Um, They might have it because, you know, if in other countries, uh, rather than the U.S., if it's a, a public healthcare system, some of that data might be, you know, anonymized and, and made public uh, in a secure way for the pure purpose of research. Yeah, actually, interestingly, they, they, uh, Dr. Joshi informed us actually that the NHS system is actually um, and has always been uh, for data collection opt out. So yeah. um, that just couldn't, couldn't be more different than it is here. Um, so, so I get that, but I'm curious maybe over, over here and for other, everywhere else. Uh, just this, I think this helps people really get it. Totally. Yeah. And it's like, so uh, universities can, you know, people run the, this day of these trials for either their PhD candidacy or just medical trials that, that have, or, or, and that have been made public for the, the sake of the public good. Um, other researchers, there are the ISIC, I believe is an image collection um, kind of like it's just a bunch of dermatologists that are trying to research computational ways to solve some problems in the industry. Um, and they are collecting any data that they can find, whether they have a trial and somebody has a dozen images, they just dump it into this database. These images are just basically coming from like wherever they can get them. And a lot of times there aren't lines drawn or like, you know, analyses done where you can say, okay, so this is just 90% male. This is, you know, 20% people of a certain uh, skin tone because of a lot, a lot of these are kind of like ad hoc and they're, it's whatever data that people can get. It, mm. It's kind of like the lowest common denominator. It's just, it's just whatever data is around. Now the, the bigger kind of industries, industry leaders, they want a pipeline where they can get more data. So if you have an app that's going to do dermatology, you're going to capture every single image and you're going to use that to label by, you know, through someone who's like 
can do it on Amazon Mechanical Turk, Turk for super cheap mm-hmm. or pay grad students who actually know what they're doing super cheap. And then you feed that data back into your into your system. And that's kind of, you know, that feedback loop that every AI company kind of aspires towards. Mm-hmm. So once you kind of have something up and running, I think it's the getting that data is a lot easier, but people are, are typically looking for the the most free and like adaptable data source that they can find. And it's actually interesting that this is kind of like what drew me to this topic in general was like, where is this data coming from? So uh, as you alluded to and, and, and have mentioned uh, with dermatology, in January 2017, um, the Nature cover story was um, this group from Stanford who had made an algorithm that beat dermatologists at uh, a, a detecting skin lesions. Mm-hmm. So that got a lot of press. I wrote about it. Everybody else wrote about it. And it was this big thing, but I was reading through the paper and I was like, where did this data come from? And it came from like, I think 18 sources of, of data and they had thousands of images and, but they had to go to 18 different repositories to find like a significant amount of dermatology data. Uh, and I was like, this just doesn't make any sense. Like it, like there are, you shouldn't have to do that much legwork for this data. So I emailed them and I was like, asking whether they're like what was the makeup of their data demographically did they have people with dark skin did they have people with light skin mm-hmm. they said that there was predominantly people with lighter skin and there are you know like the skin tone gradations that are you know it's at the fitzgerald scale i believe so it was probably predominantly people with lighter skin they had a few i think people from india in the data set so mm-hmm. there was some but it was like a vast minority. Mm. So I, so that kind of turned me on to thinking that like there's a problem with the way that the data collection happens. It's, it, it's basically, it's in the whole thing with selection bias for trials and genomics and everything else, it's basically how can we get this, easy, this data the easiest way, the fastest way, and uh, the cheapest way. And, and there have been mandates to like change that, but I don't think they've really changed much at all. That might be a too long of an answer to that question. No, no, no. This is exactly what we're looking for. And and just so people understand, you know, these labs that spend the 75% of their time fucking applying for grants and not getting them and are run on shoestring budgets trying to do this groundbreaking research are, and not necessarily painting this for evil, but the, the setup, the, the data uh, intake and and that circular system couldn't be any more different from Google and Facebook, where everyone in the world willingly gives them yeah. billions of not just your data, but uh, thousands of of factors of your data for them to parse, you know, for advertisements and and to build the products and things like that. Those are the two different things, you know, and and that's where you get such a wide spectrum and why they can focus as so specifically to you in that cool marine looking sweater that you you imagined in your head once and now it's in front of you in your Facebook feed. You know, there I think there there are, there are new hopefully democratized tools now with when you see like the Apple Watch and the iPhone and suddenly everyone who has an iPhone, which is also a limited subset, but at least a broader subset, uh, can do, uh, you know, these Parkinson's trials or, or the heart trials with the Apple Watch and things like that. You know, instead of labs having to, to pay X amount of money, suddenly it turns out there's a billion iOS devices out there and they can they can do these things. So you hope that there's, you know, progress to be made there, but um, clearly we're we're still hitting some issues. And I think it's really important just to say that, like, nobody is going 
into this wanting biased data. Like, of course I, it's, not. There are like constraints on how data is collected. There are constraints on like what data people can use, and that those are legal constraints, financial constraints, time constraints, and like a, a lot of this is a function of the the system that we live in. But I think that this whole overarching theme is that like this is too important to be slaves to that. So I think that that it's super important for people to understand that like this isn't a malicious thing that we're talking about but i sure. think that and a lot of the scientists are asking the same questions and it's also really important to know that like so there there's dermatology data there's genomic data but like the kind of data that that these machine learning researchers want is very specific and right. often it's not actually what they what's out there isn't necessarily what they want sure. so they might have like you know, there might be the ISIC database of all these dermatology images, but they're not labeled the right way. Like, right. ideally, you would have something like someone draw a line around every single lesion, and um, and that would, uh, and, you know, it's kind of like a, it's like a, a shape vector or whatever um, that would tell the algorithm this is exactly is where the lesion that you should be looking for, so it doesn't get distracted by other things. Sure, um, and that just that isn't there because dermatologists don't need that. Like human dermatologists just see the thing and they understand, okay, this is the lesion and this is the skin around it. Right. But when, when you're talking about like very dumb pattern recognition algorithms, starting like, from scratch, starting from scratch, they'll find anything. I mean, you, you know, it'll be, they can be biased by the kind of camera that you use. You know what yeah, I mean? It's sure. like when you have, when you're cobbling together these large scale databases with incomplete metadata and like i was talking to the guy who runs the isic database and he was like well we want to have demographic tags but it's like right now it's a opt-in um situation and for for putting any metadata you know what i mean so it's like so we don't have the complete thing to give and it's a lot of work for us to give a complete thing and that's kind of you know those are those constraints that i'm talking about so yeah it's a really fraught kind of complex thing where everybody wants something a little little bit different from the from the data Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and of course there's also the the natural breakdown where maybe they're not purposely i mean none of these are purposely biased like you said or, or even that accidentally, or maybe not demographically, oftentimes the problem is the data simply, or, or even the algorithms, uh, reflect uh, the population that suffers from a given ailment, and that's it. Yeah. So they might not have thousands of pictures of healthy skin, uh, which, again, I am not qualified to really dig into this, but, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's where an algorithm learns how healthy skin goes to not healthy skin. Um, But if you don't have pictures of that and, and thousands and thousands of pictures that of variations of different skin types and different skin colors uh, that haven't been exposed to different sorts of UV, then you're just not going to find those answers. Yeah. And, and just before we get too, too deep into it, there is a definite irony in two white guys discussing the the bias. I mean, I think that's our whole podcast. Yeah. yeah, there's like there definitely needs to be better representation of people having these conversations and like the, the scientists that are um, actually doing this work um, because like it shouldn't be a burden on the people of color, the women in machine learning to have to do all of this work to get themselves recognized by these machines. So it's just oh, like, 
yeah. absurd. It's absurd. Um, and, but the only reason I felt even comfortable inviting you on is because we had had a conversation with, with Dr. Joshi and, and, and Maxine McIntosh, uh, you know, two women and one of whom was in color. And, you know, yeah, I, you know, look, we try. We're two white guys. Our, our guests are, are over 50% female. And, and, no, no, no. I, no, I'm, I'm just. It's an it, we we are happy to be incredibly transparent and and forthright that it needs to be better because look I mean Apple ran into this shit too when they launched their Apple Health King a few years ago and everyone goes there's no way to track your periods in this yeah and it's because yeah. you, the five year socks t- top six people at the company are are you know over fifty white guys they haven't thought about a period in thirty years totally. and it's like yeah that's going to be a problem and when when most of the scientists and doctors are white guys uh, and that's simplifying it but not too much that they're just not sometimes not inherently going to see that there is a problem in the data, especially if they need it fast and cheap. Hey guys, it's Quinn. If you're listening to this, you obviously like podcasts and you probably like music too. On Spotify, you can listen to all of that in one place for free. You don't even need a premium account. On Spotify, you can follow your favorite podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can download episodes to listen to offline, wherever you might be, and you can easily share what you're listening to with your friends via Spotify's integrations with social platforms like Instagram. Spotify has a huge catalog of podcasts on every topic, including the one you're listening to right now. You can just search for Important Not Important on the Spotify app or browse podcasts in the Your Library tab. Very convenient. And of course, you can follow us so you never miss an episode of Important Not Important. Uh, Spotify is the world's leading music streaming service, and now it can be your go-to for podcasts, too. Hey, guys. uh, It's Brian. Sorry to interrupt. Um, I have a quick favor for you while Quinn is eating his iced maple scone. Every podcast you listen to begs for a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, and here's why. Okay, not everybody listens on Apple Podcasts, of course, like you might not be doing right now. But most of our listeners do, like 70%. And most all podcast listeners are on Apple Podcasts. And the top charts are a huge source of even more new listeners. We like new listeners. So here's the deal. Uh, some weird combination of downloads and ratings and reviews and or algorithm, I think that's a word, drive up those top charts. And, and we like being on those top charts and getting new listeners. So we, we just need your help. Uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts right this second, it's really easy. It'll take between 5 and 10 seconds. Uh, max. Okay. Uh, if you're staring at the episode screen, uh, swipe down. Down at the bottom, there's a little library button. You're going to need to tap that and then find our show and then tap that. Scroll down to ratings and reviews and, and hit the little buttons. There's little stars. And then there's a little thing that says write a review. You just click that and then you write a review. Do it right now. We'll wait. Oh, that's so nice of you. Thank you for doing that. We love you so much. Okay. Back to the episode. Let's talk about the U.S. again, because so like you said, some of the more uh, uh, public, uh, nationally run healthcare systems are in, in a better place, at least for this front. Do we, in the U.S., do we have a lot of data on healthy people uh, to, to be pulled in? You know, how is 10 years of electronic health records going on here? Because obviously those have been very complicated. They're not standardized, yada, yada. But now we've got new systems like Epic coming in. You know, I guess, where is the optimism to start pulling those things in? Yeah, we have tons and tons. We have an insane amount of health data. But I mean, ask Cigna for it or ask MetLife for it or ask, you know, ask any of the insurance companies because they're the ones holding this insane amount of data that we, we, 
you run into a lot of problems when there's a private healthcare system where everything is like segmented because it's a because holding that data is a business advantage. So uh, recently, I was you know when I was talking to the people at Winterlight Labs in Canada, they they have all of their health data for Ontario all centralized, and there are there is a organization uncomfortably named ISIS that is in charge of like have of researching with this health data and you can partner with isis and you can use national health data which is like 30 years of like alzheimer's patients at this like at keystrokes you know what i mean and it's like you can mm-hmm. understand how these diseases look in, in large-scale populations and it's just something that like the public does not have access to in the united states it's very difficult to get access to population level data for the United States health, unless you are an insurance company. Yeah. And that's what I'm curious about, unless you are doing something like starting from scratch. And again, they're not perfect by any fucking stretch of imagination, but things like they're doing with, with, uh, you know, the Stanford doing test on, on the iPhone and the Apple watch and things like that, where yeah, they realized, I'm, Oh, wait a minute. We actually have an entire population of people again that just use these devices, which is inherently probably can be a little wider and more affluent, but it's still better than than most. And we can do things like motion and vision and yeah. imagery and uh, heart rate now and things like that. Or even the the Google trial that they're running, they are getting what's like a hundred thousand people that they are paying to be in this in this trial, and they are. It's insane the the level of data that they're collecting on all of these people, but they're going to have probably the largest, most like largest, highest fidelity source of health data in like you know of a enormous cohort that you could ever imagine. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, because these people are all wearing health trackers, they are all right. you know they're getting checkups and filling out surveys, you know, every few days. Right. It's kind of insane the the length that Google is going to. And that's just because they have an on un, like I guess a functionally unlimited amount of money to do it. <laughs> um and so yeah, if you have a lot of money, then like right. of course there's data. I mean like there are so Which many is, ways to and, and a huge benefit because there's nobody better at at training these algorithms, you know, especially since they bought DeepMind a few years ago. Um and, and what could come of that and what they've already done with Google Flu and you know Project Sunroof, all this different stuff. On the other hand, we look at it and go, Oh look, it's another huge private company that's gonna have all this data. And and will will they release that? What's the benefit? Will they get into healthcare? You know, you, you talk you see uh, like Amazon trying to build its own healthcare for its all its workers and you just go like, Boy, shit's getting complicated. Yeah, and I think that it's it would be crazy. I mean, it Google's already in healthcare. Like it's they oh, are God, yeah. and and if you see the research papers that they're releasing in conjunction with like Chicago and and Cal and uh Sanford, I think, like medical centers, they right. are predicting mortality within entering, you know, like the second that you enter a hospital, they're predicting right. all of these things and getting all that training data. And this is how a big company, you know, gets gets training data. They sure. get access to like uh, entire hospitals, EMRs for 10 years, and right. then they train on it. So they are very firmly in healthcare right now, and they put some of like their top people on it. So I think that we're going to see a lot more from Google going forward. Yeah, and, and again, some of that stuff could be incredibly compelling. 
you know, I've, I've talked to, uh, I've mentioned this before. My, one of my best friends is, um, you know, working to in, in Southwestern Virginia to try and save healthcare there. And one of his, uh, focusing on analytics and it's a big, awesome research hospital, but it is in a very rural area where a lot of people don't take their medicine. They're overweight. They have diabetes, they smoke, et cetera, et cetera. So inherently they go to the emergency room a lot. And you know what 10 years of data from a place like that would look like, uh, you know, with, with the, with the machines and the money behind something like that, as opposed to him just typing it into a spreadsheet as fast as possible. Uh, you know, there's, there, there are compelling things that can come from that. And sometimes it's going to take these big companies. But the question is, is like, do we want to give it to them? Uh, what, then what are we going to permit them to do with it? What are we going to permit them to share? And are we will are we willing to then let it be public? And what's the difference between a corporate company taking a corporate and then making it public versus a government doing it? And it does behoove the argument of the UK system of, oh, it's just opt out. And that's it. And that's what it's been. And their, their key point to me was, and, and, um, it's really, it's a really great listen, uh, is that it has always been opt out. Like if we, you know, all of a sudden had universal healthcare here. And one of the sticking points was, do we make sure your data opt in or, or opt out? That would be make or break. And we literally would never get the legislation passed, but because it has been that way forever, that's just the standard that everyone is down with and has been, there's no like recent fight about it. It's just like, this is the way it is. And so they have all of this. So I, I guess that's a good segue to what do you feel like are, and again, we'll, we'll focus on the U S a little bit here and you can talk about um, other countries as you're schooled in them, but what are the government roles here? You know, a lot of these are private companies or the data comes to universities, et cetera, et cetera. But I do wonder where and how, uh, you know, someone like the FDA can help regulate or stipulate more comprehensive data sets or fund some sort of open source, new data drives to diversify and grow, et cetera, et cetera. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I, I w- want to preface this by saying I don't know every single data initiative that the you know NIH has the hell, <laughs> has ever set up, but I, I would say that I mean, so in the early '90s, the NIH there there's there was this legislation that kind of mandated the NIH to diversify its uh, trials, and this was specifically for things like genomics. Basically, we went from 91 or 96% people of European descent in genomics trials to 81%. It, mm-hmm. was, it was not hugely successful. Mm-hmm. So there have been you know, these like big pushes and millions of dollars invested in this. It has not made too much headway in terms of like public funding for this. Sure. Um, the FDA has actually been very proactive um, and the company is working with the FDA to get approval uh, for these medical AI powered medical devices have been very proactive. I've spoken to, there are two companies right now, I believe I've spoken to both of them who have FDA approval to market their AI health device. The first one was, I believe this company called IDX and uh, they do this like kind of retinal fundus image scan that is very similar to what the deep mind people are doing with the NHS um, mm-hmm. because it's like a there's very little uh, place for bias to be entered rather than like the camera camera they can find a lot from from this uh, from this very simple non intrusive image so this company has been approved so far and the FDA has been working for a few years with a bunch of companies to allow them to market. So the, the way that the FDA works is you have to get approval from them mm-hmm. uh, to market your device as a uh, as a medical device to, you know, 
mm-hmm. doctors, hospitals, the whole nine. So luckily, unlike a lot of American, you know, instruments of, of business, like mergers and whatever, like you don't have to run it by the government first, typically. But for this mm-hmm. one thing you do, which is really good. Like yeah. if there's one thing that you want to have to run to the government, it's the health care sure. device. Sure. And that's why, like, we were able to get so much information about the Apple Watch as well, because, like, right. they had to get FDA clearance. And, of course, like, the FDA clearances are, like, w- weird and confusing, but right. at least there's some clarity there. So um, right. so these two companies now have FDA clearance, um, and they're not high-stakes things. And I think that's on purpose, because these are not, like, you know, it's not going to tell you whether you have cancer or not. I think one is related to diagnosing diabetes, and the other one is, like, I, it might be looking at bones to see to like detect fractures and, mm-hmm. and things like that. So they're like they're relatively low stakes, and and I think that these are kind of test balloons to to see how AI um, systems are operating in the wild to see sure. how you know marketing them gets kind of adopted by the marketplace and, and all these things. So there are some regulations, um, but as if you can finagle your app or whatever that takes a picture of a lesion and, and suggests you go see a, a doctor, if you can position it outside of the scope of like a something like a primary care physician would use or something that actually makes a health diagnosis, mm. like, I mean, it's kind of the Wild West as much as anything else is, right. you know, like a, like a health tracker, like, you know, like Fitbits or whatever, it's a consumer product, you know, it's like the FDA only has so much sway over something that like, you know, its primary, primary function is to tell you the time, but then right. you can run your heartbeat, you know, all sorts of things. So, yeah, so I think that that there are some regulations. The more serious it gets, but in terms of like data sets, like what data sets people can use, this is something that kind of people are talking about all over AI, and we're so far from legislation on AI training data or algorithms. <laughs> what, that, what do you mean? Yeah. So yeah. It's, well, I wonder about the other side of that too. Instead of just regulations, which obviously again are important, we're very we're very lucky that. Uh, these companies do have to check and make sure things fly, you know, uh, about incentives, you know, yeah. where, where are the, um, sort of X prizes for, for data and things like that. And, and, you know, again, of course, this also comes down to, then you still have to get people to sign up and to do it. Um, yeah. and, and do devices like, uh, you know, the, the Google devices and Apple devices and things like that, which we come down de- again, we keep saying because they are, they are the most personal devices and the most capable devices we've ever had. Totally. Um, and, and that is why we keep mentioning them is, is it seems like at least for now, like the lowest common denominator, uh, best opportunity for, something like this where we go, Hey, listen, if we just do this and enough people of enough segments of, of which there are so many opt in, you know, we, we could actually have something to build on here. Um, because again, you just come down without knowing variations between populations. And I, and I don't just mean color of your skin or your nationality, but, but, uh, you know, two different people that, uh, are from the from the same country and have the same ancestors and are even from the same family could be so different, you know, without knowing that how we all would differ literally down to the genome. We don't have a goddamn clue about what the implications of those billions, maybe trillions of variations are on any potential current or future treatments. And that's where the money is both figuratively and literally. That's where we start to crack things. That's where we start to find out why immunology cures literally like 10% of people does shit for 80 and kills the other 20. 
and 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 there is promise there, but we have to start making progress on that data to find out. Yeah, and I think that another important thing here is that like representation isn't cut and dry. Like there's no there's no formula for representation, and you can talk about like well this data set is representative of New York or it's representative of LA or it's representative of Iowa, but the kind of the beauty of AI and like the reason why it's so you know, potentially lucrative. And the reason why they want to make these tools using this software is because it can be applied at scale anywhere. Sure. So when you're talking about representation in a data set, you don't necessarily, it's not just like geographic representation anymore. It's like, it needs to work. It's, it's really fairness more than representation. And like, there are all these words that kind of like mean half the same thing and have something else. So like representation is super important. Fairness is super important. It needs to work the same for everyone. And that's the overarching theme. So it's like when that's something that 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 people try. It's one way people try to pull you know the wool over your eyes a little bit, where it's like, oh well, this data set was representative of the population we tested on. It's like, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was a fair algorithm that's ready to deploy to everyone. That right. just means that maybe you curated your the the test or validation set, right. and it matched up pretty well. Sure. And that's, again, where I'm happy that they're testing it on, like, broken feet. That's great. I'm glad that we can use those as proving cases. But the next indication needs to be, oh, we really need to broaden and diversify and and go deeper here. Totally. So, Dave, your thoughts, again, keeping this objective more uh, informatory and and empowering yourself to have conversations and understand where we're going and where we are and the the progress we have made, because we have made serious progress on this. It's just extremely early days. What do you feel like our listeners can do with, as we like to say, their voice, their vote, and their dollar uh, to make these data sets uh, better and to inform themselves to help build the long road to personalized medicine? Is it conversations with their doctor? Is it supporting specific data collecting efforts? Again, you know, something open source and or interesting or something they can just opt into. Uh, is it conversations with their representatives, you know? And, and in each case, in, from your perspective, what are the things we need to be saying or asking? What I have found to be intriguing and powerful is the um, education of congresspeople in the U.S. on, on this matter. The, uh, the other month, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and a few other um, senators and congresspeople uh, sent letters to the EEOC, which is the Equal Opportunity Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, the FBI, the, I think it was the CIA, and a few other organizations talking about bias in their algorithms. Um, this is like specifically like law enforcement and, and equal um, mm-hmm. opportunity agencies. Mm-hmm. So this is something that's very much of the moment. And if you can, you know, write to your Congress people and say this is an issue that I think you should be on, on the forefront of, that's going to be huge in pushing this into something that can be legislated on a kind of a common sense basis. I think that the number one thing you can do is learn about artificial intelligence from like a way that's not necessarily informed by hype or the Terminator or science fiction, but very much in like kind of like not the science of it, but like how this stuff functionally makes sense. Like you need to know what AI is. So when somebody comes at you and says, oh, we have this new tool that you should try based on machine learning, you're like, wait, here are the questions that I could ask that would 
let me kind of understand whether this thing is legitimate or not. I think probably the number one pitfall that there is right now is just a lack of education. The words machine learning and artificial intelligence are flashy and exciting, yep. but it's, it's so varied and like, you know, it can be a complete farce um, depending on who's trying to sell it to you. So you, you really, the literacy in what AI means, where the data comes from, you know, who's backing it is so so important and and basically i think the only way that this that any of this gets better is that people just know more and know the questions to ask so the number one thing i think that listeners can do is get informed and and read themselves so aside from your excellent reporting uh where where are the best places uh for them to start learning and and if you have any thoughts on specific questions they should be asking yeah so a book that i found to be like immensely helpful with not only understanding ai as it stands but the history of ai mm. has is the book by john markoff who used to who is used to be a staff reporter at the new york times um now he's kind of like i think he's writing a book another book. Um, but this book is called Machines of Loving Grace. And it is a fantastic, like really well-written history of machine learning and artificial intelligence um, and robotics. And like, I just can't recommend that book enough. There are a number of organizations that are interested in AI's impact uh, on society, like AI Now. Um, that's a super interesting organization. Um, the Data and Society is a is a really interesting organization that mm-hmm. is I, I referred to uh, in the story I did on healthcare and AI bias. If okay, so if you really want to learn for yourself, like some like cool history about mm-hmm. AI, um, read the original proposal for the Dartmouth conferences. These in 1955, they proposed that in eight weeks they can pretty much like crack AI. And this was like Marvin Minsky and like the original uh-huh. like AI dudes. So they they proposed this and in 1956 they all got together and they talked about AI and they thought how they could like make these machines with brains as they were. So it's kind of like one of the first like legitimate uses of the word artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. But it's also like these guys basically made Carnegie Mellon. They made MIT AI, the the, the AI labs there. Um, they were just like the people. And if you read this document, it's just like astounding that that we're still asking the same questions as they were sixty years ago. Um, right. So it's kind of an incredible piece of history that you can just like Google and find online. So I would recommend reading that. That's like fun. I read it like two or three times a year, and then. Yeah, I don't know. Like, follow me on Twitter. I don't know. What, I, I there are okay. tons of. I also okay. Here is also a thing um, that I have a Twitter list that uh, I think like a hundred or something people follow, which isn't very many, but those are the most informed people on Twitter on about AI because I That's super helpful. Lo- I lovingly curate this machine learning Twitter list, and you can just follow it, and then you get. 250 plus experts in AI that I have curated for you over my years of reporting. Thank you for all that free work. We really appreciate it. Yeah, Yeah, no, that's helpful because I don't think half of our listeners can read or want to read, which is, you know, just, uh, and we have a bunch of nerds. Totally. Just read tweets. Yeah. Just, just read tweets. It's, it's going, it's taking civilization in a great place. 
Yeah. No, that's super helpful. That's awesome because that's up to the minute and you can watch the conversation evolve and, and you can follow the news, but also analysis from not just hot takes, but intelligent folks who do the yeah. work. And that that's awesome. Uh, we will yeah. check that out and we will, we will follow that uh, as well. All right. So listen, we're getting close to the uh, time here. Cannot thank you enough uh, for coming and chatting with us. If you have any, and you can tell us uh, on the line here, or you can email later, anyone awesome we should talk to in this field or any other fields uh, where people are uh, doing game-changing work. Again, you know, we focus on the major issues that are affecting everybody now uh, or in the next 10, 20 years, uh, again, from from space to cancer to climate change, to clean energy to antibiotics and CRISPR. Um, please let us know, again, preferably ladies and females of color to make up for our whiteness and our maleness. On, on- AI and especially like facial recognition and bias, like the people that I are kind of like my North Star uh, are Timnit Gebru. She is at Google. Awesome. Um, uh, she also is the co-founder of Black in AI, which is like a, a group for people of color in, in artificial intelligence. And they have they're a part of the um, NIPS conference, which is every December. And um, they are great. Um, Joy Bolami, who I whose name I continually mispronounce but she is at the mit media lab um and she is fantastic she is does like really really great uh facial recognition work um kate crawford a co-founder of ai now who is at microsoft um she is kind of like this like top premier expert and uh and speaker on the ai and bias i mean like there are so many people i'll i can tell you more but it this is those are like the three that like I would go to uh, first and foremost for more information on this. Awesome, yeah, for for sure, we will reach out to them. Awesome. Well, listen, uh, let's do our last little lightning round here, Dave. When was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? Mm, mm-hmm. Senior year of high school. Okay, hit me. Oh, okay. So yeah, I, I need an example. Yeah, so this is when I first got interested in journalism. There was a, I was writing for the school paper. Um, I wanted to write about how the superintendent was taking like a pay increase while like slashing teacher salaries. And my, the the person who, the teacher who ran the paper was like, I don't have time here. You can't do that. So I was like, fuck you. I've been doing my own paper. Mm-hmm. So I wrote, did an underground newspaper and I wrote my story and I wrote all sorts of crazy, like silly shit. And um, people like loved it. And I handed like me and my friends, like, well, I designed it and like got my friends to write for it, and we printed 200 copies at Staples. And the thing was like it, it was like three cents extra per copy, and we didn't have enough money to get it automatically stapled. So we sat around stapling it all ourselves Ugh. and handed it out in school the next day. Uh-huh. And like people were like, "Holy shit, what is this?" And like it was like you saw people like reading your shit like in person and it was like the coolest thing so that and then people would, would like talk about it and it was like yeah something that i wrote and made like change someone's mind nuts that's awesome that's yeah. that's super cool journalism is the it's the best we have, it's pretty we, rad. we have to keep it alive uh dave who is someone in your life that's positively impacted your work in the past six months positively impacted my work in the last six I would have to say, like, every reporter that's ever filed a FOIA request. I don't think it's, like, one person, but I think it's just, like, the practice of, like, trying to find information that has that is not apparent now is, I think, something that gets lost in a lot of, like, the daily reporting uh, mm-hmm. tasks. So 
when I see that on Twitter or, you know, through talking with friends or whatever, like that just motivates me to do that, which I think need more needs to be done. And I have a project hopefully coming out next year that will focus on more of that kind of reporting. Awesome. Super cool, man. Shit is a little crazy right now <laughs> in so many ways. What do you specifically do when you get overwhelmed by all of it? Mm, I cook. Ooh, what do you cook? I cook all sorts of things. I love to cook. That's like been like my stress kind of reliever. I, uh, I cook. I, I, I mean, you name it, make a really good sauce, make, you know, I, I don't really cook a lot of meat. But you got to uh, have like a go-to, like what's, what's your jam? Like, what are you known for? I, I make a dope ass, like Sunday gravy. Ooh. Like really, really good. Interesting. We might have like, to get the recipe for that for the show notes. There's no recipe. That's the magic of it. You, it's it's all you just like, what do I have? I've got a can of tomatoes and, and whatever and some meat. And it, the rest is just improv, improv. I dig it. That's awesome. Dave, how do you consume the news? Poorly. <laughs> uh, and in mass. It's mainly, it's a, a lot of Twitter and RSS feeds and things like that. So flailing uh, like the rest of us? Exactly. Yeah, I don't have the solution. Um, awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know who does besides just <laughs> signing off forever. I'm going to ask Brian's favorite question. If you could Amazon Prime one book uh, to President Donald Trump, what book would that be? So, something A book that has I have found a lot of solace in for some reason. Sure. And I, I, I know that it would never be read, but I just like to imagine is um, Marie Kondo's The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. <laughs> for some <laughs> reason kind of it's incredible the, it's like the antithesis of everything that like this administration i i think has like acted on and i think like the, this process of like intention and introspection and joy is like something that is so sparse like everywhere in the news that i see so i i would just like to see more of that in the world it kind of be incredible i mean the whole the whole you know ethos of the book is basically like put out two shirts and look at the shirt. And if it doesn't immediately bring you joy, like get rid of it or give it away or whatever. And I would just love yeah. for a person who is, you know, brought literally like the Gilded Age back to the White House. I would love to see how that process goes. Totally. And remember in the beginning, I totally forgot this until just now. And like, it was like the first or second week. And there was this picture of the, the, um, resolute desk and it just had all these papers on it and it was just <sighs> covered in papers and i was like like and everyone freaked out like i think rightfully so because that's like kind of like it's like a, a disrespectful kind of thing that also indicates that everything is kind of a mess uh -huh. uh, and <laughs> who it was knew just, who knew but it was just kind of like this amazing uh kind of like symbol and you just gotta I don't know. Just got to bring some Marie Kondo into it. I, I love it, man. Ugh, love that book. Somebody stole my copy. I'm coming after oh, really? I just copy to give to my dad for his birthday, and I'm very excited to give it to him. <laughs> uh, is he going to appreciate it, or is he going to be like, oh, we talked what the about hell, it, man? He's going to like it. We, they're, my parents are in, are in the process of a move, so it's oh, like... Okay. He's it, it, ready it, for it. He's so ready. Oh, that's awesome. All right, yeah. uh, Dave, where do our listeners... Uh, where do they stalk you online? Okay, so um, Dave... Gershgorn, G-E-R-S-H-G-O-R-N mm -hmm. on Twitter.com. And that's really it. I don't really do okay. any, I mean, I, my, I don't have like a website. Like I have, it's like three sentences. So don't go there. Okay. So just Twitter. 
Awesome. All right. Just Twitter. We will yeah. do it. And we will, uh, if you could, yeah, we'll, we'll put that. Is that, that list is public. The IA list. It is on Twitter? public. Yeah, awesome. yeah. So if you go to like my profile and then mm-hmm. I think there's like a little arrow button or something somewhere and you can find my lists, it, it's literally called machine learning. Perfect. And I guess I should also tell you to read QC.com. Okay. Where, where I work. So that, that's a good site. Yeah, we 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 love quartz here, man. Um, awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today, Dave. Uh, for course, all that you're doing out happy. there, journalism and uh, looking at the future, you're going to be the uh, Stephen Levy of this in uh, cool. in twenty years. Uh, hey, man. Hey, man. Have some confidence here. We need you. <laughs> uh, we need to, you. You you rip on Terminator, but we need you to tell us when Terminator is about to happen. Um, that's going to be best. important. Um, all right, man. Well, listen. Uh, thank you, and uh, we will talk to you more soon. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at importantnotimportant. Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us. You know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome... Rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.